this drip, drip, drip is undermining the credibility of this administration. This administration has credibility? Okay. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. <laughs> I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From in Pacifica the Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, and 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California. We're also heard up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 WGRN 94 FM, in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day, so you have no excuses. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, muckraker. What am I from? What's a blogger? I don't know. From (laughs) bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Apparently it's one of those days and we haven't even started yet. Coming up, uh, some good news. Hey, oh, look. Some good news for a change, sort of, kind of, coming out of Washington, uh, or at least some good-ish news uh, regarding a new regulation to help consumers fight back against credit card companies and bank ripoffs. It's such good news, in fact, that, of course, Republicans are hoping to reverse that new regulation as soon as possible. We will speak (laughs) with uh, Lisa Gilbert about both the good news and how long it is likely to last within this current government. That is coming up in a bit. Oh, here's a story totally related to nothing at all. Now, I'm not saying... um, Oh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hello. I didn't get to say hi to you. Okay, hi. hi. Now, uh, listen, I'm not saying uh, don't stay at a Trump hotel, but... You may want to think twice before booking a room at a Trump hotel. Uh, Guests at 14 Trump properties, including hotels in Washington, New York, and Vancouver, have had their credit card information exposed. Whoa, really? Marking the, it's worse, marking the third time in as many years that a month-long security breach has affected customers of the chain of luxury hotels, according to Washington Post. The latest instance occurred between August 2016 and March 2017. Wow, that's months. That's a long time. That, according to a notice on the company's website, and it included guests' names, addresses, phone numbers, credit card numbers, and expiration dates. The news of the latest cybersecurity attack comes less than a year after Trump International Hotels Management paid... 
$50,000 in penalties to New York State for failing to notify customers immediately after an earlier data breach. Actually, several earlier data breaches led to the exposure of more than 70,000 credit card numbers and 300 social security numbers. That's very bad. The company also argued to update its uh, agreed to update its security practices as a result of that settlement. The hotel chain has probably become even more appealing to hackers in recent months. According to Peter W. Singer, a senior fellow at the New American Foundation, which is a centrist think tank, because it has attracted a steady stream of Republican lawmakers, industry lobbyists, foreign dignitaries, all seeking to conduct business with the president. Singer said if more people are staying there in an, in an attempt to curry favor with the government, the fishing pool of targets is certainly greater than it was prior to November. Attackers first infiltrated Trump Hotel's payment processing system back in May of 2014, installed malware on the hotel's networks to mine customers' credit card information. According to an investigation cited by New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, Trump Hotels was informed of the breach in June of 2015, but did not. That's the same uh, same month that uh, Trump got into the uh, presidential race, isn't it? He was. Uh, they were informed in June of 2015, but they did not post a notice on their website until four months later, according to Schneiderman. A second breach also took place beginning in November of 2015, well after he was in the presidential race, when an attacker installed malware on 39 systems affecting five Trump hotels, according to investigators. Four months later in March, an attacker tapped into a legacy payment system that included personal information of Trump hotel property owners, including the names and social security numbers of more than 300 people. It seems very negligent that this could happen a number of times, said Justin Kapos, a uh, professor of systems and security at New York University. These patterns of oversight are a huge problem. Now, you remember Donald Trump. Remember how critical he was of the Democratic Party that they couldn't keep their email servers protected against these sorts of things? Yeah. Well, it looks like that has happened over and over and over at Trump's own hotels at the very same time that he was complaining about Democrats not being able to protect their servers. But he said he was excellent at the cyber. He did say that, didn't he? Yes, he did. Uh, I it, guess not so much. Not so much. Apparently, in May, ProPublica and Gizmodo found that a number of Trump properties, including Mar-a-Lago, oh. the resort in Palm Beach where the president regularly spends his weekend, had less than secure networks. Uh, they said uh, the reporters at those sites wrote, uh, we could have hacked them in less than five minutes, but we refrained. That was just in May of this year, oh, two months goodness. ago. That same month, President Trump signed an executive order on cybersecurity that holds federal agency heads accountable for cybersecurity risks and breaches in their network. Trump's presidential executive order said, quote, the executive branch has for far too long accepted antiquated and difficult to defend IT. And yet, uh, as the executive in charge of his own hotels who were hacked time and time again, 
Uh, I guess there's a different standard there. You know, if this were in a movie, people would think there's no way. That's that's just too implausible this, to have this sort of you know poetic justice of sorts. This story or this life right now across <laughs> these United States, uh, nobody would. It would be uh, too insane for House of Cards on Netflix, frankly. Oh, uh, the, and uh, in totally unrelated news, the White House has been thrust into chaos says Washington Post. I don't know how you can tell, but they thrust into chaos after days of ever worsening revelations about a meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and a lawyer categorized as representing the Russian government as the president fumes against his enemies and senior aides circle one another with suspicion, according to top White House officials and outside advisors. As reported by the Washington Post today, President Trump, who has been hidden from uh, public view since returning last weekend from a divisive international summit, is enraged, they say, that the Russia cloud still hangs over his presidency. He's exasperated that his eldest son and namesake has become engulfed by it. This, according to people who have spoken with him this week, the disclosure that Trump Jr. met with a Russian attorney believing he would receive incriminating information about Hillary Clinton as part of a Kremlin effort to boost his father's candidacy, at least according to the email that was sent to him, uh, has set back the administration's faltering agenda and rattled the senior leadership team. On Wednesday, in his first Twitter posts since the email disclosures, Trump defended his son uh, and repeated past claims that his administration is the subject of a witch hunt fueled by leakers. Apparently, the leakers are coming from inside the House because this uh, story is based on uh, White House uh, interviews on Tuesday with more than a dozen West Wing officials, outside advisors and friends and associates of the president and his family, many of whom spoke on the condition of anonymity in order to be candid. Trump wrote on uh, the Twitters that my son Donald did a good job last night, referring to uh, Don Jr.'s appearance on Fox News with the ever probing Sean Hannity and his withering tough questions. Uh, Trump said he was open, transparent and innocent. This is the greatest witch hunt in political history. Sad, <laughs> he added. Uh, he, he took uh, aim at these anonymous leaks from sources. Again, you know, coming from inside the House, even though uh, Trump Jr. himself gave a step by step email chronology of the plans for the meeting with the Russian lawyers in 2016. So it wasn't so much of a leak. As it was, Don Jr. just putting out the facts, or at least the emails. Um, Vice President Pence, as usual, sought to distance himself from this controversy. Inside a White House uh, in which infighting often seems like a core cultural value, Washington Post said three straight days of revelations in The New York Times about Trump Jr. have inspired a new round of accusations and recriminations with advisors privately speculating about who inside the Trump orbit may be leaking damaging information about the president's son. Who isn't, I think, who isn't leaking that kind of <laughs> damaging information? If you're not leaking, raise your hand. Exactly. Uh, the mindset of Trump Jr. over the past few days has evolved from distress to anger to defiance, they report, according to people close to him. So they're talking to. 
Uh, Trump Jr. hired a criminal defense attorney but maintains he is innocent of any wrongdoing. After his tweets commenting on the matter drew scrutiny, he agreed to his first media interview with his friend, Fox News uh, host Sean Hannity, on his, uh, on his show on Tuesday night. Trump has no has had no public events since returning Saturday night from Germany. He has been closely monitoring developments with his eldest son in the news, however, and he continues to view the Russia controversy as an excuse used by Democrats for losing an election they thought they would win. Which is a little true. I'll just say it. Uh, and uh, also an attempt to undermine the legitimacy of his victory according to aides. Uh, but they said that the president's frustration is based on media coverage of his son's actions as opposed to those actions themselves. So he's fine with what his son did. Um, and Still doesn't have any concept, it sounds else. like, of what is wrong well, with, what, with what his son did. Maybe there is nothing wrong with what his son did. We will see if there are any charges brought against him for what he did. Um Anyway, a handful of Republican operatives close to the White House are scrambling to Trump Jr.'s defense and have begun what could be an extensive campaign to try to discredit some of the journalists who have been reporting on the matter. So it's the journalist's fault for telling people about it. One outside advisor said a campaign against the press when it comes to Trump Jr.'s meeting could be futile. However, the meeting happened. It's tough to go with to go to war with the facts, that source said. No officials, uh, no official has yet delivered a robust defense of Trump Jr., though uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the uh, principal deputy press secretary, told reporters on Monday during an off camera briefing, which, you know, kind of blunts the effects of her uh, of her pushback here. She said, I would certainly say Don Jr. did not collude with anybody to influence the election at the briefing, Sanders uh, read the brief statement from the president saying, my son is a high-quality person, and I applaud his transparency. But she declined to speak further on the issue, referring all questions to Trump's Trump Jr.'s attorney. Other uh, senior White House officials were hesitant to talk about Trump Jr. at all, even on the condition of anonymity, for fear of exposing themselves legally. Just to give you an idea. Of, uh, of what is going on in the White House. Um, as I said, one outside uh, ally uh, called this a Category 5 hurricane. Although I bet the source didn't use the word hurricane there <laughs> in that. I'm just guessing. Uh, on Capitol Hill, meanwhile, uh, where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced on Tuesday that he is delaying his chamber's August recess by two weeks. Republican senators were becoming increasingly frustrated with the White House, which they blame for Congress's inability to pass any major legislation. Not sure why it's the president's fault, but that's what they're saying. In an interview on Fox News on Tuesday, Republican uh, Congressman Trey Gowdy of South Carolina. Remember him? Uh, he headed up the uh, one, uh, speaking of the greatest witch hunt in uh, American political history, he headed up the House Republicans uh, investigation, one of them, into Benghazi. Trey Gowdy said that the constant drip of damaging revelations is harming the administration's agenda and that he was troubled on three levels after reading the chain of emails released by Trump Jr. Those three things are the legal level, 
the political level and the medical level. And the third, which is more of a medical issue, is the amnesia of people that are in the Trump orbit. Someone close to the president needs to get everyone connected with that campaign in a room and say from the time you saw Dr. Zhivago until the moment you <laughs> until the moment you drank vodka with a guy named Boris, you list every single one of those and we're gonna turn them over to the special counsel because this drip, drip, drip is undermining the credibility of this administration. Yeah, I'm not sure they had any to start with. In any event, that was Trey Gowdy on Fox News, at least pretending to be disturbed by all of this. I'm sure he'll come up with a reason why everything is just fine as he does when it's a Republican in question. Gowdy also criticized the fact that the White House knowingly withheld the emails in question, which he said included a number of words that troubled him uh, and, uh, and that they allowed congressional Republicans to repeatedly and publicly defend Trump and the administration while distracting attention from passing the Republicans' agenda of essentially dismantling the country. Which words in the email disturb you? Um, Russian government's uh, efforts to help the Trump campaign, official yeah. documents. Uh, th th those are the kind of words that for months and months Republicans have been saying there is no evidence of collusion between Trump, the Trump campaign, or even hangers on. And here we have this meeting um, that may amount to nothing, but, but here we are on a Tuesday, on a week we ought to be discussing infrastructure tax reform, and we're still talking about Russia, and frankly with some good reason, because this email, yeah. um, we should have known about it before yesterday. He's not happy. <laughs> no, which is surprising to hear him say that on Fox News. On Fox News with Martha McCallum, uh, AP's take on the mood inside the White House right now was very similar to Washington Post's Category 5 hurricane explanation. Their headline, in private, Trump rages against Russian lawyer scandal involving son. They note the public has not laid eyes on the president since he returned from Europe on Saturday, but in private, Trump has raged against the latest Russia development with most of his ire directed at the media, not his son, according to people who've spoken with him in recent days. So essentially confirming uh, the report that came out around the same time from the Washington Post, the bombshell revelation that Trump Jr. was eager to accept information from what he was told was the Russian government landed hard on weary White House aides. While staff people have grown accustomed to a good news cycle being overshadowed by the uh, Russia investigations, Trump aides and outside advisors privately acknowledged that this week's developments felt more serious. As has been the pattern for Trump's White House, the controversy sparked a new round of recriminations among the president's own team, according to the AP. Nearly a dozen White House officials, so they also talked to nearly a dozen White House officials and outside advisors who spoke on the condition of anonymity in order to discuss the mood in the West Wing. Some of the unhappiness centers on Trump's legal team, apparently, uh, being led currently by New York attorney Mark Kasowitz. An unusual statement on Saturday night from the legal team's spokesman, Mark Corallo, appeared to claim that Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner and uh, Paul Manafort were duped into that meeting with the Russian lawyer and uh, was viewed as unhelpful by senior White House officials 
Because after the email came out, it was clear that, well, they weren't duped. (laughs) They weren't duped at all. They actively encouraged it. Trump allies took notice on Tuesday when Sergeant Schultz, oh, I mean, Vice President uh, Mike Pence, (laughs) distanced himself from the revelations. Uh, So they know they're not happy about this, that Pence is distancing himself from all of this. In a statement, uh, Pence's spokesperson said the vice president was not aware of the meeting. And the Pence was not focused on stories about the campaign, especially pertaining to the time before he joined the campaign. Pence was named uh, uh, Trump's running mate about one month later after the uh, June 26 meeting. The president, again on Twitter, pushed back today on the narrative of a dysfunctional administration, writing that the White House, quote, is functioning perfectly. (laughs) And claiming that, quote, I have very little time for watching TV, he said in his tweet. Yet, AP notes that more than 10 of the president's tweets since Monday have been about TV shows or linked to uh, videos from the Fox News channel. Uh, So I guess he's got enough time on Capitol Hill. In the meantime, uh, some Republican lawmakers cast the snowballing controversy as a distraction from the health care debate. The the revolutions, the revelations uh, come at a pivotal moment for Trump and the Republican Party as GOP senators race to finish work on on the health care overhaul that has divided the party, says AP. Well, we would hate for them or for you to be distracted from their plans to dismantle health care for millions of Americans. So let's take a quick break here. And we'll come back to focus on what Senate Republicans are now planning to do as early as Thursday this week regarding their next attempt to pass a massive health care plan. And uh, and believe it or not, there may be some good ish news on that front as well, but only ish that and other good ish news this week out of Washington on that uh, regulation to help consumers take on the big banks. All of that and more straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit if you can by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Do you really want to hurt me? Yeah. Do you really want to make me cry? I think they do. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Lisa Gilbert coming up from Public Citizen momentarily. Um, and this just in from Reuters here. 
who got an interview with Donald Trump, uh, I guess the first interview since the uh, news of Donald Trump Jr. And, and his meeting with that Russian attorney. U.S. President Donald Trump said on Wednesday he was unaware of his son Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting last year, um, which is now at the heart of the White House controversy, telling Reuters he only learned of it a couple of days ago. Putting himself on record there, uh, if he, if there's evidence that he didn't tell the truth there, that's not going to look good. We'll see. The emails, um, let's see, he says in the interview that uh, Trump does not fault his son for holding the meeting. I think many people would have held that meeting, the president said. So uh, that's the uh, first direct comments in an interview uh, concerning that meeting. And I'm sure there'll be much talk about that in the future, but much less talk uh, about what the Republicans are trying to do right now, right now in the Senate regarding health care. Some good ish news here, maybe. And who can't use some good ish news right now? Uh, AP uh, says that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will unveil a revised health care bill on Thursday with a vote on moving ahead on the measure next week. McConnell told reporters on Tuesday he expects the analysts at the Congressional Budget Office to provide its assessment early next week, probably on Monday. McConnell laid out the schedule shortly after announcing that the Senate will delay its August recess for two weeks to work on legislation including a defense bill and nominations, but they appear to be putting health care first. As we told you yesterday, if they can, they're going to move this thing. And on that front, there is, as I said, what I will describe as some good-ish news. Good-ish. That's about uh, as good as it gets. Uh, Top Senate Republicans have indicated that it is likely that the Affordable Care Act taxes on high earners that the initial GOP repeal bill eliminated would now be put back in to the latest draft expected this week, according to Tierney Sneed over at Talking Points Memo. She quotes uh, Senator John Cornyn, the uh, second, uh, n- the number two Senate Republican, saying that's the current discussion, that they will remain in there. They will remove these tax cuts for the wealthy. Uh, he said that they will remain in there, and the goal would be to provide more stability funds to help bring premiums down and more flexibility for the governors and legislators to deal with deductibles. Now, more flexibility to deal with deductibles, that likely means getting rid of the essential health benefit requirements under the Affordable Care Act uh, to make sure that insurance policies pay for stuff that people actually need in their insurance, like hospital stays, emergency room fees and you know other things like that. By the way, I'd be happy to sell you health care for just five dollars a month. It will include nothing but a Band-Aid that I happen to have here in my pocket if you cut your finger. But other than that, you can have health insurance for $5 a month. It's those kind of plans that Republicans are hoping to uh, allow once again in order to say, look, we brought premiums down. The two taxes here that are uh, reportedly going to be kept in the, uh, in, in the uh, GOP plan now Uh, are the uh, 3.8% net investment tax and a 0.9% payroll Medicare tax for high earners. 
The repeal of Obamacare's taxes on the uh, health care industry, however, is expected to live on in the new version of the legislation. So the profitable health care industry can become even more so. And yes, it is very profitable. Yes, even under Obamacare. The Wall Street Journal first reported on Tuesday that these taxes were going to stay in in the revised version of the Senate bill, otherwise known as the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Slated for release on Thursday, Senator John Barrasso, another member of the Senate GOP leadership, confirmed to Bloomberg on Tuesday that those taxes would remain in the bill. The initial version of the bill had eliminated both of those taxes with the repeal of the net investment tax going into effect retroactively. So that one, if you had uh, paid taxes on that, you were going to get money back from previous years. I think they were going to go back to 2016 taxes and pay you off. That's how much they wanted to cut the taxes. Yep. According to the CBO, uh, repealing that tax uh, cost the government more than $170 billion over the next decade. That would go to the wealthy people. Uh, Money uh, Senate Republicans say they can now use to boost other provisions in the bill, like the stability fund and credits for individual insurance. Some rank-and-file Republicans also raised concerns about the optics of cutting taxes for higher earners. So they finally noticed. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of shocked it took them that long. It appears that the uh, money saved by keeping those taxes, however, will not go to softening the bill's Medicaid cuts which a number of Republicans were hoping to see uh, in uh, recent negotiations. But that apparently is not going to happen, at least as of now, at least in the the bill that is said to be coming out on Thursday. The tweaks that the GOP leadership is making to that stalled Obamacare repeal legislation will not likely include a rollback of its cuts to Medicaid, according to Barrasso. What we had in the original bill has not changed with regard to Medicaid, he said. Axios also reported that the Medicaid provisions were likely to stay without major changes. The original legislation begins phasing out the Affordable Care Act's expanded Medicaid program in 2021. And that uh, I think there's some 11 million people who are now enjoying health coverage uh, thanks to that expanded Medicaid coverage. So by 2021, that will be uh, be phased out under this bill or begin uh, phasing out. And then it will be drawn down entirely just three years later by 2024. And it transforms the overall program, the traditional Medicaid program, into a per capita cap, which limits the funding states get from the feds on a per enrollee basis, as opposed to right now, where they get unlimited money needed to. uh, Yeah, in other words, they get the the, the amount of money that is needed. Not anymore. Not under this bill. If it's passed, there'll be a cap. If you get sicker than that, you're out of luck. The per capita limit would then rise over time, but at a slower rate than Medicaid's traditional growth with an even more draconian inflation metric introduced in 2025. So basically, they're going to tie it not to the cost of health care, but to a different measure that rises less quickly than the cost of health care. Um, Let's see. The uh, the original uh, uh, overall, the CBO estimated that those specific cuts alone to the Medicaid program would result in some 15 million fewer insured by 2026 compared to the current law. 
and greater coverage losses in the decade following that. And reportedly, Republicans are not planning to change any of that. That part's going to stay in. They're fine with that. They're getting rid of some of the tax cuts for the rich. That's progress, right? See, goodish news. I told you there was goodish news here. And we'll take it where we can find it, but the rest, not so much. Uh, keeping the original Medicaid provisions will put in a bind some of the senators who had cited those Medicaid cuts as reasons that they could not support the, the this version, the previous version of the legislation. So that's also goodish news. Those senators will still be in that same bind. At least three Senate Republicans have said publicly that the cuts would need to be softened to earn their support. And if they stick to that position, the bill will not have the 50 votes needed to pass. Now, I don't know how much they're going to stick to that provision, but I suspect um, that they're going to do anything and everything they can, Republican leadership, to buy these people off. And now they have this extra money uh, to do it with, This uh, since these tax cuts will not be included. So... Uh, you know, for anybody who thinks this is not going to uh, move ahead, you may be right, but I would certainly not count on it. Uh, Axios uh, had reported that uh, Republicans are still deeply divided, saying that uh, overall uh, things aren't looking good. And there's even talk now of attempting a bipartisan alternative. What? They're going to actually work with Democrats? Apparently so. That could be a uh, good thing, that but happens. that could also be a bad thing. Well, we will <laughs> see what happens. But here's what you need to keep in mind. This study, just <laughs> a new study that probably a lot of people haven't heard about because, you know, all of the other news that's going on. But uh, as McClatchy reports at new data on the improving finances of the nation's individual insurers are calling into question repeated Republican claims that Obamacare marketplaces are collapsing under the Affordable Care Act. For months, Republican leaders from Trump uh, and Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price to House Speaker Paul Ryan have said Obamacare was crumbling under its own weight. It could not be saved. Tom Price, the uh, HHS secretary, said the situation has never been more dire. But new research released Monday by the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that profitability and other financial measures for individual insurers have dramatically improved over the past year. Profitability has improved. They're hmm. actually having the best year that they have ever had since the ACA began, according to <laughs> Cynthia Cox, Associate Director of Health uh, Reform at Kaiser. The share of premiums paid out as medical claims by individual insurers fell to 75% in the first quarter of 2017. So they're making 25%, essentially. On what is coming in, they're only paying out 75 percent. That's uh, down from 86 uh, percent in the first three months of last year and 88 percent in the first quarter of 2015. So it's all getting more and more profitable for them. Um, per enrollee medical claims, uh, the average uh, monthly premium income exceeded the medical claims by roughly $100 in the first quarter. That's up from $48 in the first quarter of 2016, $36 in uh, first quarter of 2015. So they are making more and more money. And yet we keep hearing how it's in a death spiral. Everything is falling apart. It's dying. Trump declared that Obamacare was dead in May and the individual marketplace was in a death spiral. Not so much. Cox disputed uh, that assessment and said there's really not signs of a death spiral here.
<laughs> so, and yet, that's what they keep saying. Uh, in a letter to uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Democratic senators are saying, hey, let's work together. Let's make common sense reforms here to guarantee these cost-sharing payments, to find solutions for areas uh, without insurers. And um, uh, another analysis found that uh, where premiums are going up, it is uh, at least 50 percent due to uncertainty surrounding the uh, the influences of Congress, what they are going to do to, to the health care bill and whether these insurers are going to be paid at all. As uh, Trump has said, maybe we won't. Maybe we won't give them the payments that we promised. So, um, yeah, no death spiral here. Uh, McClatchy's headline, Death Spiral, Obamacare insurers may be having their best year yet under ACA. NBC News reported Obamacare is not collapsing. The Hill reported Obamacare market is stabilizing, not collapsing. L.A. Times said more evidence shows Obamacare is getting healthier, but will that stop the GOP wrecking crew? And at the same time, as our friend Digby uh, notices over at Hullabaloo, Ted Cruz is working hard to get people killed. Politico reports that Ted Cruz's plan to give insurers freedom to sell plans that don't comply with Obamacare's insurance regulations may be conservatives' last best chance to salvage the stalled Senate health care bill, but it also might send Obamacare insurance markets into, wait for it, a death spiral. <laughs> oh, goodness. So uh, keep pushing, keep paying attention. Uh, all right, we got to take a quick break. Uh, some more good-ish news and something you can pay attention to because something good has happened for you out there, consumers. You should know about it before it goes away. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. We rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Well, that's just exactly what corporations would like to prevent you coming together to sue them. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, here is some more good-ish news, at least for the moment. Uh, like the healthcare fight and so much else uh, getting otherwise buried right now, thanks to the ongoing investigations of Team Trump, uh, it may only be good news for now, unless the public hears about it and can act on it. So, according to David Lazarus at the LA Times this week, consumers had good reason to celebrate on Monday after the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, after years of preparation, issued a rule blocking credit card companies, banks, and other financial firms from putting roadblocks in the way of customers joining class action lawsuits. It's a big deal, Lazarus writes, along with the ominous warning that the party won't last. 
because God forbid consumers actually have the power to hold big companies accountable for unfair or unethical practices, he says. The CFPB was authorized by the 2010 law that created the Bureau, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, to study the use of arbitration clauses related to financial products and services. Dodd-Frank says the CFPB may prohibit or impose conditions or limitations on the use of arbitration clauses if it determines that restricting such provisions is in the public interest and for the protection of consumers. Yes, that's written into the law. And that is exactly what the CFPB did this week after some five years of study of the issue of this potential rule. CFPB Director Richard Cordray said in a statement, arbitration clauses in contracts for products like bank accounts and credit cards make it nearly impossible for people to take companies to court when things go wrong. Consumer advocates echoed Cordray. Rohit Chopra of the Consumer Federation of America said the rule will help to combat the culture of companies profiting from charging illegal fees and committing other crimes against their customers. Lisa Donner of Americans for Financial Reform said the consumer agency's rule will stop Wall Street and predatory lenders from ripping people off with impunity and make markets fairer and safer for ordinary Americans. In their own statement, Public Citizen, the national nonprofit advocacy group that, as they say, has been standing up to corporate power and holding government accountable for 45 years, hailed the new rule to restore consumers' ability to join together in class action lawsuits against banks and other financial institutions. Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen, did not hold back in this statement. He said, rip-off clauses in the fine print of consumer contracts may be the single most important way that big banks and financial companies have escaped accountability for cheating, conning, fleecing, defrauding, and plundering consumers. Today's action by the CFPB, he said, is of paramount importance. Lisa Gilbert, vice president of legislative affairs for the group, said, over the past decade, large corporations have turned fine print clauses buried deep in their contracts into a license to steal from American consumers and cover up the evidence. The CFPB rule will right this egregious wrong by restoring consumers' ability to enforce their most basic rights and protections in court. Well, that all sounds like very good news, but once again, as Lazarus reported in the L.A. Times, the party may not last. Here to explain both the reason to celebrate and why the party may not last is Lisa Gilbert. She is the vice president of legislative affairs at Public Citizen, where she advocates for government transparency and integrity, financial reform, civil justice and consumer protection. Lisa Gilbert, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, appreciate you joining us. Uh, let me let me start with uh, w let's start with the good news for the moment. While at least we have some, uh, even if only for the moment. Uh, first, Lisa, what are these arbitration clauses, or as the uh, as public citizen and others refer to them, rip off clauses or fine print clauses? What what do they do exactly, and and actually, what do they keep people from doing? 
Well, uh, we call them ripoff clauses because that is exactly what they do. Uh, many people sign contracts without reading the tiny fine print, we would say most. And in those contracts, whether it's with a financial institution, whether it's a credit card, whether it's a cell phone uh, contract, uh, people are foreclosed on the right to sue a company if it wrongs them. Uh, people uh, certainly don't know that that's happening, and uh, if they can't sue, they're instead forced into what we call arbitration. Uh, it's a kangaroo court set up. It's uh, something that the corporation itself funds and pays for. Uh, so you can imagine it is biased in their direction. Uh, few people ever go to it at all, but when they do, they tend to lose. So it's a way for corporations to get out of jail free uh, if they rip off their customers. And what kind of rip-offs are we talking about? Are these uh, large dollar amounts? Are these uh, small dollar amounts at fees and, uh, and so forth? Uh, what, what kind of things are they prevented from suing over? Sure. Well, uh, you know, corporations rip people off in all kinds of ways, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, what we're most concerned about are the small dollar ripoffs because it's pretty unlikely that people will go to either court or arbitration for a ripoff that's, you know, $50, $60, $100. It won't feel like it's worth the trouble. Uh, however, you imagine that ripoff multiplied by thousands and thousands of consumers, mm -hmm. the corporation uh, can certainly make off like a bandit while uh, not being held accountable uh, by the individual customers. And so, uh, one thing that we've long found incredibly important is the right of customers to band together, to sue as a group in a class action. Uh, and so this is something that uh, we want to protect and, and something that this rule would do. So these are like, uh, so it, it, you're talking about things like late fees where they charge a certain amount, they charge too much money, $35, $50 or something like that, and no one in their right mind, no single citizen would go to court uh, or, or even try to go to court over that because it would cost them more to, f to fight it than just pay it? Are those the type of fees that then these attorneys come in and, and form a class action suit to fight against? Uh, that's exactly it. So, you know, if there's a kind of a small overcharge mm -hmm. uh, that's accidentally made on, on just one consumer, they probably won't do anything about it. But if it's happening on thousands and thousands of consumers, uh, that means the company's pocketing billions uh, yeah. in stolen money. And, and consumers, if they can't band together, they probably won't fight back. Are these types of uh, these, these anti-arbitration clauses, are, are they new? Uh, how, how and when did they come about in, uh, in these contracts? They're not new. Uh, they've been around for a long time, but more and more companies have started using them over the years. And at this point, they're they're pretty ubiquitous. We see them in, in almost every type of consumer contract, whether it's a nursing home contract, a summer camp contract, a cell phone contract, or uh, what the CFPB's rule is focused on, financial services contracts. Um, and certainly, you know, companies have recognized that if they force people into arbitration, they, they have a way to, to not be held accountable uh, because one other uh, subset of this problem is that when you go to arbitration, it's usually a secret proceeding. Mm -hmm. So not only do they they often win in arbitration, so they get away with the crime itself, but then future customers don't even know that the ripoff occurred. The uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, is, is a relatively new federal agency. Can, can you very quickly just explain what it is and what it is supposed to do? 
Yes. Uh, well, the CFPB is something that we love at Public Citizen. It is new, as you say. It came about as part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act after the crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was something advocated for very staunchly by Senator, now Senator Elizabeth Warren, before she was a senator. Right. Um, and it's something that we think is a huge achievement. Never before was there uh, an institution at the federal level that was charged simply with protecting regular Main Street Americans. And, and you know, we are a constituency that needs to be represented here since we are the ones participating in the financial sector without an advocate. So, uh, you know, the CFPB has has done remarkable work in, uh, you know, helping regular consumers, both providing information on how to work within the markets, uh, creating a database to track consumer harms that that anyone can access and add to, and then doing things like this, uh, creating rules that will protect people in the marketplace, and in this case, keep people uh, having the right to take consumer to take corporations to court. Republicans, I know, have long hated the CFPB uh, since its formation, which, again, was in the wake of the 2007 uh, global economic collapse resulting from the banking crisis. Um, uh, But was the creation of the CFPB entirely a Democratic affair? Were there Republicans at the time who also supported the agency? Well, uh, there were Republicans who voted for Dodd-Frank, so (laughs) some, um, although... You know, it, it was not something that was particularly advocated for in a particularly bipartisan way, but um, but I think that, you know, those that, that recognize that their constituents have been harmed, um, you know, at the time at least were willing to, to let the CFPB be created. Um, I think since then there's been such umbrage on the part of financial institutions, the biggest banks, those that tend to donate more to Republicans that we've we've seen slipping away of any real defense of uh, not only the agency, but of Dodd-Frank itself. You, uh, as your uh, public citizen press release, release notes uh, hailing this uh, new rule for now, uh, both Democrats and Republicans have condemned uh, things like the years-long abuse of consumers by banks like Wells Fargo, which essentially forced credit cards and uh, other accounts on customers, whether they needed them or not, and charging fees for those accounts in the bargain. That was all to the tune of of billions of dollars in ill-gotten gains for the bank. Um, would would th- this rule have helped to prevent or at least given recourse to uh, to those consumers who were abused by uh, what, what Wells Fargo was doing? It definitely would have helped. One uh, subset of the terrible Wells Fargo story is that in addition to signing up customers for fake accounts and credit cards, those contracts, those fake contracts mm-hmm. included in them, arbitration clauses. And so one of the reasons it took so long to figure out what was going on is that it was very hard for those customers, once defrauded, to take their matter to court. And and that's the reason it took uh, consumer agencies like the CFPB and also um, an agency in California uh, taking a, taking time to do this enforcement action for us to find out what was going on. Uh, if this uh, rulemaking had been in place, we would have known a lot sooner, and probably fewer people would have been ripped off. And and yet, even though Republicans claim to be outraged by that, uh, apparently the bank is still has uh, still has these uh, arbitration clauses in place. So if if Republicans and Democrats were you know said to be so furious about what happened there, why would they be against a rule like this from the CFPB? Well, that's the million dollar question, and I think it uh, goes back to the millions of dollars that are in play in politics. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly uh, people who are receiving donations from the biggest banks are likely to advocate on their behalf, and that's that is what is happening here. Billion dollar question, I think, is more accurate. The uh, probably the, the, the Hill reports uh, today that Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas. 
uh, plans to seek repeal of this new law that uh, cracks down on these arbitration clauses in customer contracts with financial firms. He says, and I, I want to get your reaction, Lisa Gilbert, uh, quote, the Bureau's new rule on arbitration clauses ignores the consumer benefits of arbitration and treats Arkansans like helpless children and capable of making business decisions in their own best interest. The last thing American uh, Americans need is more anti-business regulations that will prompt frivolous lawsuits while hurting consumers. Your reaction to that, Lisa? Yes. Well, my reaction is there are a lot of misstatements in there. I think one of the big myths out there is that arbitration is somehow a faster, cheaper alternative for consumers, but it is not an alternative to class action lawsuits. It's simply a way to prevent the vast majority of consumers from getting any relief at all. Studies show that most people simply give up when they're forced into arbitration, especially for the kinds of small dollar claims we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on that front, it, it certainly is is not true that um, when given a choice, consumers would always choose to go to court, um, but forced arbitration is forced. You have to go to arbitration. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, this is in no way what uh, Tom Cotton is saying, taking away consumers' choices. If anything, it's narrowing them and giving them only one forced arbitration. Um, and then finally, the idea of frivolous lawsuits, it's just a misnomer. I mean, as we were just saying, you know, consumers rarely go to court, and they only do it when they feel really harmed or when there's a way for them to band together with many others who were harmed in a small way. And and it does seem like, you know, I've been uh, d- d- listed as uh, part of a class in some of these suits, uh, you know, where I found out that uh, AT&T was charging, uh, you know, $6 a month for something that they shouldn't have. It's something that I wouldn't have, have even known about, and I suspect the only reason I ended up, uh, you know, as part of that class was because you had attorneys who were out there looking for these things, looking for these reasons to bring these uh, uh, these causes of action where consumers are ripped off. I wouldn't have known about it. I wouldn't have realized that I was getting ripped off. And I think uh, it, it doesn't it take away uh, it, the incentive if if they're not allowed to create these classes. Doesn't it take away the incentive for these consumer advocate attorneys to even dig into these things and try to get justice for customers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is there will be no incentive if you cannot uh, create classes. I mean, it's it's as we've been saying, these small dollar claims, there is no other fair way to make sure that companies are really held accountable. Consumers won't, won't take action and, and uh, attorneys won't uh, won't seek this out. I think, you know, it's it's um, there's a reason that the coalition of groups working to push this rulemaking forward is primarily made up of consumer groups and civil rights groups and small business groups because, you know, we've all seen the unfair practice of forced arbitration and, and understand the need for suits uh, when consumers are wrong. David Lazarus at the L.A. Times reports that it's all but certain that Republican lawmakers in control of the House and Senate will move quickly to overturn the rule as part of their ongoing efforts to cripple the Consumer Watchdog Agency, that's the CFPB, and create a more business-friendly regulatory landscape. Uh, but Lisa Gilbert, what tools do uh, do Republicans have to do that? Uh, I know they have a, a, a bill that's been drafted. Uh, wh- how, how do you expect this to move forward at this point, the, the response to the new rule? 
Well, I think we've heard a number of Republicans speaking out and saying they want to try to overturn the rulemaking using the Congressional Review Act, Mm -hmm. which is a way that Congress can challenge new rulemakings if they do it immediately after the rules are put into place. Um, You know, I think it's, it's... possible that those bills will come to the floor. Um, I also think that it'll be a tough fight if they do, that there are Republicans who understand how unpopular it would be to try to stop uh, you know, regular Americans from holding corporations accountable, that that is not a populist message. And so there's, there's certainly a chance that, that we would win. And so whether they want to bring it to the floor, we'll certainly take that into account. Um, you know, we also expect that the rule, you know, might, uh, you know, corporations might try to sue to stop it. And so we are ironically using the court system. And so we are ready mm-hmm. uh, for that possibility as well. The, uh, they, they, in addition to the Congressional Review Act, I see that they have this 600-page rollback bill uh, prepared, a, a draft uh, to roll back the CFPB overall. And uh, on buried on page 415 of this bill, apparently it says without actually saying what it does, that uh, this uh, repeals Section 1028 of the Consumer Financial Protection Act of 2010. They don't specify what it does, but apparently that's the section that grants the power to the CFPB to restrict these arbitration clauses. Uh, And uh, if that bill is enacted, those arbitration clauses, the power to restrict them in any event, would simply be taken away. How uh, do you feel there's so much going on? There's so much noise right now. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to cover this is because I have a feeling people aren't even hearing about this. Does the public know about it? Uh, And what can they do if they're listening to this show and now they do know something about it? what, What can they do to to help prevent this from being rolled back now that we've had what is arguably a victory for consumers here. Mm-hmm. I think what they can do is weigh in with the folks in Congress. I think that that very large bill has so many unpopular pieces in it that it's unlikely to pass in that incarnation. However, pieces of it might be uh, picked up and uh, attached to other must-pass bills like budget bills. And so the more that uh, you know, members of Congress have heard that, that this particular provision is a non-starter, the harder it will be for them to sneak it in. And, and the more staff in, a different, in different offices will be paying attention. So weigh in because uh, this is the moment where constituent pressure will make a difference. Yeah, and I think uh, as we've seen in, in recent months, so much of this is up to the public uh, to, to weigh in and to use that to call Congress. Their number is 202-224-3121 uh, and let them know uh, that you support this uh, rule and that uh, you would oppose rolling it back after all of these years trying to uh, put in some protections for consumers for a change. Lisa Gilbert, Vice President of Legislative Affairs at Public Citizen, really appreciate you coming on and and explaining what this is, and I hope you'll stay in touch as this moves forward and as the inevitable attempt to roll back the rule, uh, as I fear, uh, uh, begins to percolate in Congress. Uh, Absolutely, and thanks so much for having me again. You bet. Thank you. Lisa Gilbert, you can find uh, their work at citizen.org, and you can find Lisa herself on the Twitters at Lisa underscore pub citizen. Thanks again, Lisa. Thank you. Okay, I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks also to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate 
to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters where we hope you will share us worldwide. I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, which will be soon. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.